there's a lot of things uh, in the Old Testament that you don't want to mess with. And uh, in recent weeks, we've seen, have we not, that you could be defiled by coming into contact with disease or with Gentiles. But I would suggest, arguably, the most well-known purity law of them all is to do with food. This law is, is so well-known that if we were playing family fortunes right now, and I asked you to name one thing that Jews will not eat, you could all tell me exactly what our survey says. Could you not? Let's try it. What is it? Yeah. You got it. Pigs, pork. Someone shouted bacon last night. It's all the same thing. The rule, it comes from that first lesson that we just heard, uh, first reading, Leviticus. Uh, you don't need to look at it. I'll run through it very quickly. But it says there, you shall not eat these. Number one, the camel. Number two, the rock badger. These will not do at all well on the family fortune survey. But number three, well, the pig. You don't eat it. Uh, then it says also, you shall not touch their carcasses. And there's just a little hint there with this word carcasses, that the law is going to go on and progress to talk not just about things, but about states of being that can defile you with death and bodies and, and the things of death and the burial places of the dead being especially bad. So my summary of the whole Levitical purity code is this. You do not mess with Gentiles, pigs, or tombs. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 8, where we find Jesus surrounded by Gentiles, pigs, and tombs. That's an interesting little thing, is it not? What's he doing? Verse 28. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, a Gentile town, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Uh, fierce, supernaturally strong. Wild beyond restraint. As a result of this wildness, this, this danger that they pose to those around them, they've been forced to live away, uh, live out among the tombs and the graves of a sort of cemetery. Many, many tombs had these anterooms or little overhangs over the door, and some scholars believe they're basically sleeping as in a doorway to a tomb. Others think, actually, they've, they've moved into the tomb itself, as in the thing with a skeleton inside of it. They've gone in there to make their bed in a tomb. And the only other living thing around that we know about at first is this herd of pigs. So we've got Gentiles, pigs, and tombs. They've made a home in the creepiest and the most defiling place of all. But then we see Jesus comes to them. This is what he does. This is what Jesus does. And, and it's actually no surprise that he does this. It shouldn't be. This is such a God thing to do. This is what God does. And he even told them he would do it. Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God, sings the psalmist, if I put my bed in a literal grave, I know you will come and find me. God told them he would do this kind of thing. Jesus is precisely where we should expect him 
to be. And this hints, this visit to the grave, hints that Jesus will go lower yet, even into a grave of his own, if that's what it costs to pull us up out of it. It's such a lovely snapshot of the cross. There's no such thing as a no-go area for Jesus. That's what we learn from the start of this passage. There's no condition too far gone for him to restore. There is no place too creepy, too unclean for him to enter in. Even a terrifying place like this is the kind of place that Jesus goes. But in all of this talk of of Gentiles and pigs and tombs, there's something even more terrifying going on there. That is something from the unseen realm, a spiritual force or power that is, is rare and is manifesting in that place and has a hold of these men. And before we go on to talk about the actual encounter and the the healing and restoration itself, we just need to pause a moment and and look at this spiritual force and get a few things clear. When we talk about demons and we talk about the demonic, it is tempting for us to fall into one of two equal opposite errors, if you like, two mistakes. And the first mistake is to become overly obsessed with demons and the demonic, to sort of wallow in the genre of horror, and to be overcome and paralyzed with fear about their power. The second equal opposite mistake is to become very dismissive about the idea of the demonic, to become complacent about it, or even to deny the reality of demons at all. So we have excessive fear, and we have if you like, complete denial as two equal opposite errors. We're going to deal with the fear factor first. Demons are spiritual beings with immense power. These are the angels of Satan, the fallen angels we read in Revelation. It's where they come from. And these powerful, demonic spiritual beings can attack people in all sorts of ways. This is the source of temptation. It's the source of of shame, of condemnation, of loops of addiction, of of fear, all of those things. If you're in Christ, however, there is one thing that demons cannot do, and that is possess you. They cannot do that. In uh, 1 John chapter 4, we read that God dwells within you. God is in you. And uh, in chapter 5, it says, John says, therefore... Because God is in you, you are protected from such things. 1 Corinthians describes us, we, the people of God, as the temple of God. You came to a church today, but if we all went down to the field, we would still be a temple, the temple. There's only one, and all universal believers are it. Therefore, we are protected. Uh, In John chapter 1, the prologue to John's, John's gospel, we read, that we believers are filled with all of the fullness of the Holy Spirit as he pours out gift after gift or grace upon grace. The image there in John being of the sort of ever overflowing, abundant pouring out of the Holy Spirit to saturate and overfulfill that which already is full. You are saturated with a spirit, but it is the Spirit of God. 
What that means is that although demons are immensely powerful and they can come against us in a variety of different ways, they can never possess you. They can't enter into you because you are already possessed by God. The Holy Spirit would make a lousy housemate for a demon. You know, we've got a spare room going. Put it up on Craigslist. A demon applies and the Holy Spirit says, oh, do come in, old boy. You know, we're a bit strapped for cash at the moment because we've got a room for you. Ain't going to happen. That scenario, I can tell you from Scripture, is never going to happen. God, we're told, is a jealous God. He is not going to share that which belongs to him. A demon has no place in the temple of God. Nevertheless, from outside, from outwith, in the street, if you like, They can make a racket, they can keep you up at night, and they can throw things at the house from outside. That's what they do. And of course, even if they do not attack you directly in some weird supernatural way, they're probably working on someone else, and that someone else is probably in your life. If you've had a a terrible boss at work, or or you've been attacked in, in the street, or you've been driving along and someone's had a complete road rage tantrum, Pause and ask yourself, where did they get their ideas from? What is going on in the unseen realm? So they're real, but they can't have you. You belong to God. Thus, there is no need for excessive fear. Now, at the other end of the scale, that's excessive fear. At the other end of the scale, there are those who simply deny the existence of the demonic at all. And, uh, you know, it's all just a little bit exaggerated, is it not? A little bit ridiculous or unreal, perhaps. Some scholars have described these references, such as the one in our passage today, as metaphorical. You know, a bit like the phrase we have, we all have our demons. It's just a phrase, right? It just means bad stuff. Um, They're personifications of an idea, but no more. Uh, Others have have dismissed the account, actually, as just a primitive's understanding of mental health. Like, we know better. We know about hormones. We know about the mind. We know about trauma. You know, they were rubes. They had no idea. So if someone had a bad day, they just said, ah, well, it must be a spirit, because they were stupid. We know better. That makes no sense, because we've had three healings in the series already. We've had leprosy, paralysis, and fever. And at no point did Matthew start making stuff up about where it came from. They knew sickness when they saw it. That's all it was. They knew mental health when they saw it. There are many passages of Scripture that deal with it, and it is described there no different as something physical, just like we know. If your mind is suffering, it's not really any different from your leg suffering. You didn't choose it. It's actually quite normal. It's nothing to be afraid of or weird about. Many psychologists believe that that half of the American population in their lifetime will experience depression. Mental health is normal. At no point does Scripture come up with some shaming and ridiculous idea to explain any of it. Now, another reason we know it cannot be a metaphor, and this is a good one, is because metaphors don't normally get a speaking part, do they? Look at verse 29. Behold... They cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
Now, Matthew chooses this word behold very carefully, igu in Greek. Uh, it means look or, or hey, yins. It's like, a, hey, you know, uh, you say, um, you, what do you say? What do you shout? We shout oi in England. What is it? Hey, right? Hey, oi. I think oi is better. But it's like a kind of, look, zoom in, slow down, really focus in on this thing. Behold is one of those words that says, I know I've been on a bit, but you really want to look at, at, at this. Take careful notes. Take careful note of just how coherent these apparent metaphors are. Note, in fact, they have a more detailed grasp of reality than any of the people in this encounter seem to have, these apparent madmen. Behold, they recognize immediately who Jesus is, the Son of God. Behold, also, they know exactly what he can do, and they don't like it. The time is coming, they confess, when he will torment them. It's a doctrinal statement, and it's a, a statement that's wholly consistent with what we learn elsewhere in Scripture. Revelation tells us, chapters 14 and 20, that a time will come when the demonic forces will be thrown into the lake of fire and they will be tormented day and night forever. So the demons know who he is, God. They know what he will do, defeat them. And although they don't know when it's going to happen, they know it should not be happening now. So this is an entirely coherent narrative that we're looking at right here. These are not the ravings of someone out of their mind. Demons are real. They're able to cause great harm, even to the believers of God. But they can't have you if you belong to Jesus already. And they themselves admit that one day their time will be up. And this is not the time. This is not the final showdown. So what is it? What are we actually looking at in, in Matthew chapter 8? Well, what we've seen with all of these healings is that all of them, whatever they are, if they're physical or mental or spiritual, all of them are like a preview or a snapshot of something to come in the future. Every single one of these healings is, is like a little uh, active testimony pointing towards this final showdown when, when all things will be restored, when all sickness will end, when all tears will be dried, when all demons will be cast away, and when even the creation itself, which groans, will be restored and renewed and, and made perfect forever in the presence of God. This little healing in a Gentile town surrounded by pigs and tombs is a foretaste of eternity. Verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Do listen to the podcast for more detail on perhaps why. Verse 32. And he said to them, Go. And that's it. That's the healing. Just one word this week. There's barely any description of the healing at all, and there's no description now of the men that have just been healed, because they're not the point. The point is that Jesus has authority over powers that no one else here on this earth could ever control. And all it takes to transform situations and transform the hearts of men and to cast demons away 
is a word. Only God can do this. Only God can change reality with a word. That means there's something even more terrifying there amongst the pigs in the tombs, something even more terrifying than the demons, and that is Jesus. Terrifyingly powerful, but good. So they came out and they went into the pigs, and behold, take careful note, zoom in, slow down, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Visible proof that they are real and they are out. And as the scale of the possession of these men becomes clear, uh, note now the attention turns to those that saw it. The camera turns and focuses on someone else. The scene changes. The attention turns to people like me and you who witness what Jesus can do. And the question arises, what are we going to do with this thing that we just saw? As the reality of who Jesus is occurs to us afresh, the question that comes up that we must wrestle with and always wrestle with is, what are we going to do? How are we going to react to this Lord? Verse 33, the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, take note, zoom in, slow down, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Uh, Clearly, all the city knows that something epic has just taken place. This is a great moment. It's a surprise. And we should expect them to come out of the city with some degree of of trepidation and fear, for sure, because what power is this that has come to our town? But also some expectation, I should think, and some joy as well. They get to welcome back these demon-possessed men. Perhaps these are husbands, or fathers, or sons, or brothers that have been away a long time. And helpless relatives have had to get on without them and see them suffer in the dust on that hill. Perhaps now they can just visit the grave of someone they love that's been off limits for a few years. Perhaps uh, they can use the road to go to the next town and, and see people they've not seen for several years. Maybe now, even, they could become good Jews now that the pigs are gone. All these possibilities. You know, surely, as with Peter's mum a couple of weeks ago, we'd expect them to bring out all of their own problems to this man and see if he could do anything about that, right? Because if he can do this, what else can he do? In that reading with Peter's mum, you know, a little tiny thing gets fixed in a private room and everybody comes. So what is this going to do, do you think? What about broken bodies and broken minds? Can he fix those? What about broken finances and broken relationships? Could he work on those? What else do you think could just be restored in their town with just a word? My garage door's been busted since last year. Can he fix supply chains, I wonder? Does he do economies? Does he do countries? Does he do worlds? What else does he do? It's a really good question. What else can this man do? But they'll never find out. 
They'll never know. Because Matthew goes on to say, when they saw him, they begged him to leave. Begged means humbly beseeched. The Greek word, to pray. Got down on their knees and they earnestly prayed. With all of their hearts, one word prayer. Go. Why? Why do they pray, go away? That's because they didn't care about the men. They didn't care about the new song that God must have put in those men's hearts. They come back singing and dancing about their freedom. And the town goes, shut up. We don't want that, thank you very much. They didn't care about the families. They didn't care about homes. They didn't care about the cemetery. They didn't care about the road. They cared about pigs. Their livelihood was floating belly up in a lake right now. They couldn't get past that. The Lord of Restoration had come to their town and he'd made a claim over something that was more precious to them than anything else at all. There are things in this world that you do not mess with, and he messed with their money. And they didn't like it. So they begged him. They begged Jesus to do what he commanded the demons to do, and that is go. They exorcised Jesus from their lives for the sake of a greater God. The scholar P.P. Levitoff says, all down the ages, the world has been refusing Jesus because it prefers its pigs. So my question to you is really simple. It's really the question the passage implies, and that is, what about you? What are your pigs? What demons are you willing to live with so long as you get to keep your pigs? Are you willing to have Jesus draw near to you in your mess so that you can thank God that yesterday's gone, that you've been freed and forgiven? If that also means letting go of your idolatry, are you ready for that? Do you want to be restored on Jesus' terms? Or do you want him to go away? turn from this place with a new song in our hearts. Would uh, you give to us this, this song of freedom and release and of healing and restoration. And Lord Jesus, would you save us from having that song exercised from our hearts. Lord, as you restore and deliver us from the demons that may oppress from outside pray also, Lord Jesus, that you would free us from 
clinging so tightly to our idols that healing fails to reach our homes. In your precious name we pray.